Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to check out all of our latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or take a look at our original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as our growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. There are some individuals who've been on this program who I just can't get enough of, and I keep asking them to come back on. And one of those perennial favorites of mine, and judging by the feedback I get from listeners, I'm not remotely alone in this, one of my all-time faves is Ryan Haas, Armacost Chair at the John L. Thornton Center at the Brookings Institute, Senior Advisor at the Scowcroft Group, and Senior Advisor at McLarty Associates. Ryan was a Foreign Service Officer and became the China Director at the National Security Council during the second Obama administration. While Ryan is always welcome on Seneca this week, appearance is occasioned by the fact that he has just published an excellent, excellent book uh, that I highly recommend to anyone listening. It's called Stronger, Adapting America's China Strategy in an Age of Competitive Interdependence. And it is a book that, as I read it, it felt like it was somehow managing to take all the incomplete, stray, and badly articulated thoughts I've had on the very topic you know, that he writes on that I think about all the time. And, uh, and trim off all the woolly bits and arrange them all neatly and deploy them very deftly in a very effective formation. So it's an argument to train harder, to get eat better, run faster, uh, rather than try and trip the other guy. I mean, if you want to shorten it. But it's out now. Get yourself a copy. Ryan, welcome back to Seneca. Congratulations on the book. And I, I really hope that it's just being read by everyone in government right now, not just here in the U.S., but also in allied capitals and, most importantly, in Beijing. Uh, and I certainly hope that the ideas that it contains just get a ton of traction in D.C. because the world would just be a far better place for it. Welcome. Kaiser, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a, uh, it's really an honor for me to be with you. I feel like there's nothing that I can say that would top what, uh, what you just said. So I might just leave now, but uh, <laughs> seriously, it's, it's really uh, wonderful to be back with you. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Listen, before we get started, I mean, this is the thing that, that, that I think will suck everyone in in the first few pages. You start with this this, this uh, really funny anecdote. It's a shocking and very sad anecdote uh, that you relate about a meeting you had with the transition team at Trump Tower in late 2016. Um, I'm hoping you can tell that story here and maybe name names this time. Tell us who was present at the meeting from the Trump side. <laughs> well... Uh, as context, uh, I was serving as the China director at the National Security Council staff uh, during the transition from the Obama to the Trump team. And uh, the senior leadership at the White House felt like it was important for the incoming team to have the benefit of understanding sort of the logic and theory of the case for how we approach China. Not uh, to try to persuade them to adopt or accept our approach, but just to understand how we got to where we were and what they would be inheriting. Right. And so our instruction was to go to Trump Tower, not put any spin on the ball, but just to answer their questions and try to set uh, set the frame. And we got about five minutes into the conversation of you know explaining uh, what had happened, what hadn't, what had worked, what hadn't. And uh, the person on the other side of the table, uh, I He's will not going to name, <laughs> but he he put his hand up and and said. I've heard enough. We know what we need to know. And we know that the problem was that you guys weren't strong enough to, to deal with China. 
And you guys, meaning the Obama administration, didn't understand that if we don't prevail over China, in 50 years, there may not be a, a United States of America, that China may control the world and and uh, impose its vision and values on, on all of us. And so we're going to be tough where you've been weak. And uh, when we're done, statues will be built in our honor. And, <laughs> and you know, it was sort of a jarring conversation, to be perfectly honest. And, and uh, we, we downshifted to a discussion about the Army-Navy football game, which was coming up. And a few minutes later, we were out the door. Wow. Anyway, that's just a foretaste of what you get. Well, let's fast forward four years. I mean, because last time we spoke on the show, which was, you know, just on, on the eve of inauguration, I asked you about what features of the Trump administration's China policy you thought an incoming Biden administration ought to keep. And not surprisingly, I mean, you didn't pull any punches. I mean, about the failures, you didn't see a whole lot that you wanted to keep. Uh, you talked about the gratuitous insults, and obviously that wasn't going to be a part of it. The zero-sum mentality and, you know, the heedless pursuit of decoupling. Uh, but these days... It, it's become fashionable, I think, in D.C. to suggest that there's actually more continuity than change from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, at least so far. And I've seen, you know, I've seen it described as Trump light. Uh, now, well, I, I certainly recognize that there is some continuity. I mean, definitely more than I'd like. But my distinct sense is also that if you put it all in the balance, the policy changes are pretty profound. I mean, you know, they they haven't really been I think duly acknowledged in the media. There have been some some changes. So I want to give you a chance here to correct the record. What do you believe has changed and maybe hasn't gotten the attention that perhaps it it, it deserves? Well, Kaiser, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that there have been changes that have been subtle but significant from uh, Trump to Biden. The first is that Joe Biden has been incredibly disciplined about talking about China as a competitor as opposed to an adversary. Right. A competitor is someone that you want to outpace, uh, whereas a adversary or enemy is someone that you feel the need to harm in order to protect yourself. So it's a it's an important distinction. Uh, there's also been sort of a, a lessening of the rhetorical arms race mm -hmm. uh, that was so evident uh, earlier on. Uh, there is a, a decision in both capitals to get back in the business of dealing directly with each other uh, as counterparts just as a recognition of the fact that we are two mature global powers that are going to have to find ways to deal with each other, whether we like each other or not. Uh, there is an acknowledgement uh, among both sides that uh, they will be affected by the actions of the other. Uh, and both leaders have agreed that it is possible to cooperate with competitors and to compartmentalize areas of strong difference and areas of mutually beneficial coordination. This was evident in, in the phone call, for example, yeah, between yeah. President Biden and President Xi. So uh, those are, are subtle distinctions, but I think they're important ones. And I think what they, when you add them all up, what they represent is a shift, a gradual shift from sharp confrontation to deep competition. That's, that's excellent. That's a good way of putting it. And we already have to look forward to the Anchorage Summit uh, where we're going to see Anthony Blinken and, uh, and Jake Sullivan meeting with Yang Jiechi and Wang Yi. Right. Um, that's, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, you know, when we spoke last time, you know, you talked about the perils of 10-foot-tall syndrome, uh, which you've since written about separately as well. One thing that I think you've done successfully in your book is to frame China's challenges realistically and, and more importantly, from Beijing's own perspectives in talking about the challenges that the Chinese leadership itself recognizes and identifies either publicly or in candid moments of personal conversation that they've had with, with you and with some of your colleagues. 
And, um, you know, you don't indulge, as too many people do, in just wishful thinking about China's challenges or weaknesses. Um, how is it, though, that we have convinced ourselves that China can accomplish everything that it sets out to uh, when this is clearly, I mean, it's it's obviously just simply not the case. So I think, you know, you, you've probably seen this clip from the American comedian Bill Maher's show, Real Time with Bill Maher, where he definitely indulges in a little bit of this 10-foot-tall syndrome. Let me play a clip from that and then ask you, you know, to share with us some of your thoughts. In two generations, China has built 500 entire cities from scratch, moved the majority of their huge population from poverty to the middle class, and mostly cornered the market in 5G and pharmaceuticals. Oh, and they bought Africa. (laughs) Their new Silk Road initiative is the biggest infrastructure project in history, indebting not just that continent, but large parts of Asia, Europe, and the Middle East to the people who built their roads, bridges, and ports. If you want to go anywhere in the world these days, you better have a yen for travel. (laughs) Yen for travel. Oh, stop it. In China alone, they have 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. America has none. Our fastest train is the train that goes around the zoo. California wanted to build high-speed rail connecting the entire state, but alas, could not. We're six billion in the hole just trying to finish the track connecting the vital hubs of Bakersfield and Merced. (laughs) One small step for nobody, one giant leap if you're a raisin. On a national level, we've been having Infrastructure Week every week since 2009. But we never do anything. Half the country is having a never-ending woke competition deciding whether Mr. Potato Head has a dick. (laughs) And the other half believes we have to stop the lizard people because they're eating babies. We are a silly people. Even when we all agree on something, like getting rid of the penny. No. The inertia, the ass-covering, the graft, the lawyers, the cowardice. Nothing ever moves in this impacted colon of a country. We see a problem and we ignore it, lie about it, fight about it, endlessly litigate it, sunset closet, kick it down the road, and then write a bill where a half-assed solution doesn't kick in for 10 years. China China sees a problem and they fix it. They build a dam. We debate what to rename it. (laughs) That's why their airports look like this and ours look like this. So, so, Ryan, what do you make of that? Well, uh, what I make of it is that Bill Maher would probably be uh, best served staying as a comedian as opposed to an analyst of China. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But look, what what he is doing, he's tapping into a sentiment uh, that is prevalent in the United States right now, and it's popular. And I, I think part of what has happened is because the marketplace of ideas on China has grown so competitive, there's such a huge volume of information on China every day, that to really stand out or break apart, you need to come up with the most flashy, fear-inducing argument you can possibly conceive of. Right. And, and uh, this is what we see over and over again. Uh, I think it also reflects uh, the fact that, you know, Within a, a segment of our population, there are only a few issues upon which a large 
group can agree upon, and one of which is China is bad. Right. Uh, China is a threat. China is a problem. And if you sort of start from the moralistic view of of China um, as this ten foot tall opponent that has you know omnipotent power and far sighted wisdom, it, it makes sense, I guess, at a certain level, that you would want to try to deal with them uh, and slow them down. But he- here's the problem that I see, Kaiser. Um, first, it causes us to be really anxious, really insecure about China. Mm-hmm. Uh, it causes us to have secretaries of state travel around the world warning about China is coming, China is coming. It, it, it is an advertisement of our insecurities. Yeah. And, and insecurity is not an attractive look uh, yeah. in human-to-human interactions or in diplomacy. And um, I think that a, a confident, steady approach uh, would do much better, would serve us much better, in terms of attracting the support that we want and need from allies and partners for dealing with China. Absolutely. And we'll come back to this theme of confidence again and again during this, this conversation. Uh, one thing that you do in the book, Ryan, is you try to right-size America's problems and to remind readers of America's enduring strengths, which I think we very much agree on, things like you know our innovation ecosystem, uh, powered in very large part by you know, the strength of our, our institutions of higher education, which in turn are so great in part because they're so open to immigration. We attract the best and the brightest. That's all a very, very big piece of it. But uh, investing in education, rebuilding infrastructure, trying to end partisan gridlock, toxic polarization, aren't all these things that you know we should be doing anyway? We don't need Bill Maher or China, I would think, to to uh, to spur us to action. I mean, why why do we need you know to have China as a spur? <laughs> well, it it feels like China has become the policy equivalent of duct tape. It's capable of fixing anything. If you have hyper-partisanship at home, talk about China. If you have uh, transatlantic problems, talk about China. If you need to give NATO purpose, talk about China. Oh, I saw you know, that. <laughs> you know, <NATO> purpose. <laughs> you know, I think pretty soon China is going to begin to be introduced in advertising pitches for diapers. It, it's, it's really sort of reached uh, comic levels. But here's the deal. It, I think it is possible to use China to spur domestic progress in very targeted ways. Uh, for example, around technology funding. But it needs to be done with care and forethought, and it's not risk-free. Uh, because if you overcrank on this, you will find yourself, I think, quickly being pressured into mobilizing to counter a imminent threat. We saw this uh, in the past, a r- rapid rise in defense spending during the, the start of the Cold War. You will see upticks in racism, right. which we, we, already, are yeah. we already are seeing. Uh, and it angers me at the core of my soul to, to see this. It makes me so mad. Um, but we will begin to start viewing every Chinese action as a threat to us everywhere in the world without right. regard to whether it implicates our vital interest. It's going to cause us to, to feel more isolated from our friends uh, around the world, none of whom will subscribe to the same you know dramatic threat theory that, uh, that we are capturing ourselves in. It will put strain on the global economy if we allow this to go too far. Uh, a lot of knowledge production uh, occurs on the west coast of the United States and the east coast of China. If you if you rupture those links, it's going to slow down knowledge production. Mm-hmm. And it will also compel China to respond in kind in, in ways that I think we will find uncomfortable. So, yes, I, I understand the need in a very targeted, precise way to try to use China to concentrate ourselves on what needs to be done. But I would just hope that we would do it uh, with, with calibration. Indeed, indeed. Ryan, when I spoke to you a few months back before the inauguration, I asked you a question about whether you thought that there was a discernible grand strategy 
be, be you know, for the, the Biden team. At, at the time, it was kind of difficult. But now you've laid out your own vision for China's strategy. And so I'll ask you the same question about your approach. Is there a grand strategy that can be inferred or extrapolated from this framework for China policy that you lay out? I mean, it seems to me that it can't really be avoided. You, you, I mean, it, I'm going to say that again. It seems to me that that it can't be avoided. You have to posit certain assumptions about about the world, about uh, what America's role in it should be, about how to prioritize challenges that we face in different parts of the world. And of course, nobody is going to disagree with us about the importance, the centrality even of China in all of this. So what's the grand strategy we can <laughs> infer from? Well, I uh, I am very modest about ascribing grand strategy to anything that I say or write. Um, so I, I will be limited in my response. But okay. the, the I guess the idea that could inform grand strategy, if there was such a thing, is that America's greatest strength is our ability to do big, hard things well. This is what John Lewis Gaddis observed, mm -hmm. that no country can be stronger in the world than it is at home. Competent, inclusive, effective governance really matters. It's what differentiates South Korea from North Korea, West Germany from East Germany. And we need to recognize where our sources of strength and our competition with China or anyone else come from. And we need to invest in those sources of strength. And I, I would also argue that, you know, even in spite of our many flaws that are very visible, we still, I believe, are the best positioned country in the world to meet the challenges of the 21st century. So that should give us confidence. And that confidence should translate into patience and steadiness and firmness for dealing with the problems that come at us. Absolutely. So there is, in a sense, continuity from Trump. Um, it's America first, right? <laughs> <laughs> the right kind of America first. So the Biden team has talked about a foreign policy for the middle class, something that Jake Sullivan and the new policy planning director at state, Solon Ahmad, have written on, uh, and that really, I think, be began to, to take real shape uh, with Biden's February 4th foreign policy speech at the State Department, uh, which I thought was an excellent, excellent speech. Um, so what do you make of this idea? Is it broadly consistent with what you are prescribing in your book? And what are the implications for China policy specifically in this foreign policy for the middle class? Well, I think that it is broadly consistent with what I'm trying to argue mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. the, the idea, as I understand it, is that uh, our foreign policy needs to deliver material benefits to the people of our country. Right. Uh, having a foreign policy that is good for aggregate GDP or for a tiny slice of our population that lives uh, you know, in, in Manhattan isn't going to do it. Right. Uh, and if people don't perceive that they are receiving benefits from our policies, that there are only downsides that harm them, that rob them of their jobs and their dignity, they're going to be pissed off. And if they're pissed off, they're going to be seduced more easily by simple arguments uh, that the solution to problems like China is just to be stronger and tougher and and that uh, you know charlatans will be able to tell them that they can fix problems with China uh, through sheer force of will. And if we go down that path again, uh, we'll have to relearn some of the painful lessons that I think that we've acquired over the past four years. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, in an interview that he did with Chris Wallace in December, Jake Sullivan uh, was you know, kind of somewhat critical of, of Obama's foreign policy approach, uh, saying that he didn't really think that it elevated and centered the middle class uh, and its concerns. So I, I'm curious about what your reaction to that is. And just now, maybe you've indicated that you kind of share in that critique. But I also like to know what 
in hindsight, when it comes to China, you think the Obama administration got wrong? Not what would you do differently than the Obama administration did since obviously China, I mean, now is, you know, the rest of the world has moved on. It's changed a lot since you were, you know, starting at NSC. But what are some of the areas where you wish you might have pushed China harder, maybe, or wished you had taken a different tack? Well, it's a it's a really interesting question, Kaiser. I, I think with the benefit of hindsight, uh, one of the things that we maybe underappreciated uh, was the sense of intensity and urgency that many Americans felt uh, about China. Mm-hmm. Um, President Obama, I think, was very deliberate in wanting to shield China policy from sort of partisan political crosswinds and pursue sort of a uh, a long, far-sighted strategy uh, that insulated, you know, what we were doing from the the mood of the moment. Right. And uh, I think that that was was wise on the merits, um, but in practice, it fed a perception that uh, we were aloof or indifferent to the ways that China and Chinese activities were negatively harming uh, people's lives inside the United States. And it, you know, it created space for Donald Trump and others to to make the case that they did. Yeah, that's that's very fair. That's very fair. And uh, so we've seen this idea articulated now of, of a of foreign policy for the middle class. We've also seen Secretary Blinken uh, talk about this sort of three part approach to China foreign policy that he describes it as competitive, collaborative, and adversarial. What what do you make of this this approach? Well, I I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. For a couple of reasons. The first is that it recognizes the complexity of the relationship. Uh, the relationship is not monochromatic. It's not predetermined. Uh, it's variable. And it's going to evolve and adapt as we go forward. Uh, second, uh, it suggests that we should find ways to collaborate even as we compete and disagree strongly uh, and really clash in some, some areas. And I, you know, I like that idea of a mature, dispassionate dealing of two major powers. That's that's how I, I think that we should relate to each other. But perhaps as importantly, or maybe more so, the framing brings us closer to our allies. Uh, this right. the, this framing echoes what we hear from our European friends. It bears resemblances to how our Japanese, Korean, and other friends talk about China. And the more that we can narrow the gap between how we are thinking about, talking about, and approaching China and how our allies are, I think the stronger we're going to be in. For sure, for sure. So the phrase that you use, though, I think to describe the situation is one that I I like even better than this tripartite division. Uh, It's competitive interdependence. It's right there in the title. Uh, Like so many other ways to conceptualize the relationship, uh, it's a two-word phrase where one has to be the noun and the other is, you know, it has to be an adjective. Ordinarily, the noun is the more basic, you know, maybe less mutable truth, right? The thing you ultimately want to emphasize. In your case, the noun is interdependence, but you describe competitive as its key defining feature too in in throughout the book. Um, How deliberate was this for you? And did you toy with interdependent uh, competition, maybe, as an alternative. <laughs> well, I, I I wrestled with it for a while. Uh, the, the choice of those two words was very deliberate. It was trying to capture the, the theme that you just identified, that the relationship will be competitive inherently for a long time to come. We just, the United States and China have different governance and economic systems. We both have regional and global ambitions that, uh, that 
that sometimes put us in tension with each other. And there are many areas where we just have fundamental differences of views that are not reconcilable, uh, right. whether it's on human rights and values or Taiwan, uh, Xinjiang, Hong Kong. So we're going to, it, the relationship's going to be sporty well into the future. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we're going to be impacted by each other for good or for ill. We're going to be a partner or a problem to each other everywhere in the world because the reality is that we are both major economies with large populations, with major militaries, and global interest. We're the only two countries in the world that have all four of those attributes. Right. And as you said in the book, I mean, that we're pulling away from the pack. Both these countries are, especially in things like technology, um, really, if you look at all the major technologies of the Industrial Revolution, there are only two countries that are pioneering those, and those two, of course, are China and the United States, right? Right, right. And, you know, there's just a dense web of relationships that have built up between our two countries. Uh, American firms sell something like $400 billion into the Chinese market um, with American factories operating in China selling to the Chinese market. There's $700 billion of two-way trade every year. There's massive stocks of investment in both directions. Um, As we talked about, we're both deeply integrated in knowledge production. Um, And neither country is going to be able to solve global challenges that confront both of us simultaneously unless we find some way to pull in the same direction. And so we're stuck. We're stuck with each other whether we like it or not. And it doesn't really matter if we like each other. Um, We just have to recognize that we are bound by interdependence even as we compete with each other. And so when Biden, the Biden administration talks about competing without catastrophe, that's, I think, sort of another shorthand way of talking about what I'm trying to describe. Right. My sense, though, is that interdependence is so often, though, framed mainly as a disadvantage for us, for the United States, that it's only seen as something that circumscribes American options, that takes too many options off the table. But I actually strongly believe that interdependence, which by definition is two-way, also gives us genuine leverage in some areas. I mean, I think some of that is in your book. Um, Can you talk about some of the ways in which you think interdependence actually helps us advance American interests with China? Well, it certainly raises the cost to China of um, of allowing the U.S.-China relationship to tip into unmitigated rivalry. Right. Um, and we need to, you know, bear in mind that we feel pretty threatened by China in many areas, but we're still significantly stronger than China. So if you stand in their shoes uh, and look at the relationship from the opposite direction, it's pretty daunting. Uh, in terms of our, our military capacity, in terms of our economic weight, uh, in terms of China's dependence upon uh, foreign inputs for its economy, for semiconductors, for fuel, for food. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's still the United States Navy that, uh, that keeps sea lines of communication open around the world. So um, the, the interdependence certainly goes both ways, and uh, I think it should have a chassis effect in both directions. Good, good. Uh, one key assumption in your book, and ones that I, I, I very much happen to share, uh, but I don't think everyone does, is the way that you answer the fundamental question, what does China want? Uh, you say repeatedly in the book, uh, as kind of shorthand, that China wants to regain what it views as its rightful position as the central power in Asia and a great power globally. I accentuate what it views as well as the definite and indefinite articles, the and a, for a reason. I, I mean, you're not saying that it is China's rightful position, only that that's what China thinks it is, uh, that you know, China believes that this is its rightful position, and that while it wants to be top dog in Asia, it only wants to be a great power globally, not 
uh, I mean, I think it's it's quite elegant. It's very economical. Uh, really, way to good way to say it. But again. This is something that is going to be deeply problematic for some people. Some people are going to say that, well, even that, that that's intolerable. That's not acceptable. Others are going to say that you've simply underestimated the extent of Beijing's, you know, genuine ambitions. Do you think, though, the question is, is there enough consensus on this, what does China want question within the Biden administration to form a basis for policy? It's a great question. And the honest answer is, I don't know. Um, I think that the debate that exists outside of the administration probably exists inside of it as well. Mm. Um, I know that there are some colleagues who focused on textual analyses and, and see very troubling signs of what China's ambitions are to dominate the world and impose their vision uh, on the rest of the world. And they can point to, to speeches and statements and op-eds uh, that uh, exist in China. But I worry that in the process of doing so that some of these analyses not all of them, but some of them, you know, they tend to lack a bit of nuance or understanding of how Chinese language documents often are in discussion with each other, mm -hmm. and they do not represent a single authoritative view. There is a competition for ideas in China, just like there is in the United States. It's not as visible, but it exists. Um, but to treat, uh, you know, a, a set of documents as smoking gun evidence of China's grand strategy to dominate the world and displace the United States from leadership I, I just worry that sometimes it leads to a bit of an overinflation of the China threat and an underappreciation of the significant challenges that China faces on its own. Mm -hmm. And so that's that that's sort of what I was getting at in the the framing that you described. Which I think again is is just not only accurate but also extremely uh, economical and, and and very nicely put. I'm going to borrow that from you. Um, <laughs> look, there there's still going to be people on the especially on the left in the US who are going to be you know I think broadly sympathetic to your approach and uh, who will see it as a far sight better than what came before but still might catch a whiff of american exceptionalism who might see maybe too forward leaning a posture especially militarily in the western pacific including within the first island chain um too much of that sort of indispensable power thinking maybe too sunny or of an assessment of how qu quickly the US can actually you know, rebound from its its damaged reputation and get its own house in order, maybe an underestimation of the extent of partisan gridlock. Uh, what would you say to them? <laughs> uh, that's a tougher audience. Well, <laughs> I, would, uh, I would say a few things. Uh, one, if I leave any reader with the impression that uh, I'm advocating for American hegemism and dominance of Asia, then I've failed as a writer. Uh, what I am trying to advocate for is a firm, steady approach to America's foremost competitor. Uh, I acknowledge and accept that the relationship is going to be highly competitive, but that there are going to be strong incentives for both sides to avoid conflict. I accept that neither side is going to be able to impose its will on the other or achieve its national ambitions if it is in an outright hostile relationship with the other. Um, I, you know, I argue that the United States does not need to defeat China. But it does need to show that it can deliver the goods for its people, act in accordance with its values, and lead efforts to meet global challenges on the world stage. If we do those things, I think we'll be just fine in our competition with China. The final thought, Kaiser, is that we have been here before. Um, uh, um, this is the what the sixth period of declinist fears in the United States over the past 70 years. We were worried after Sputnik. 
we were worried after the Soviet Union was consolidating control uh, behind the Iron Curtain and, and expanding in Africa and Latin America. Mm -hmm. We were concerned with the OPEC oil embargo. Mm -hmm. We were shaken by Vietnam. We were alarmed uh, when Japan had its period of rapid rise. And you know what? We came out stronger through through each of those experiences. So I'm placing a bet that uh, that we're capable of coming out stronger again. But you know, we'll we'll find out. We'll see. No, I, I share that confidence. Uh, so I mean, this is really the crux of, of what you propose in your book. I mean, you you think that even as competition intensifies, we can coexist. You can uh, lay out exactly you know where American interests and Chinese ambitions do kind of bump up against each other uncomfortably. Uh, and, you know, where there are incompatible areas and suggest ways to address those short of use of force. So um, I think this is the most important bit of your book. If anything, we should spend a little bit of time and spell that out for our listeners. How do you do that? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, the I'm not sure if there's a single pithy answer to the question, um, but I think that there are a few things that can be instructive as guides for us. Uh, the first, we, we need to recognize the nature of how the United States and China operate in the international system. You were just talking about this, uh, that we are the, the two dominant powers in the international system. We're racing ahead of every other country in the world. Um, and that's just a, that's a fact that we have to contend with. Um, so uh, I would challenge anyone who suggests that, uh, that American strength can lead to Chinese capitulation or collapse. I don't see it. Um, and that leads me to, I guess, the second thought, which is that we need to acknowledge that Given uh, our global weight, we're both going to be heavily impacted by the other. Right. Uh, we both are affected by events in Latin America, Central Asia, South Asia, uh, the Middle East, Europe, everywhere. And uh, so, you know, the more that we're able to consult with each other and, and be forthright with each other uh, about what our interests, imperatives, and concerns are, I think the better that we're each going to be able to navigate uh, the relationship. And at the same time, uh, there are going to be areas where we just have fundamental differences of views, and on those areas, we're going to have to be clear, consistent, firm, and steady in framing what we can and cannot tolerate in terms of Chinese behavior. But my, I guess my overall argument is that we're fated to coexist within intensifying competition, um, not because we necessarily like each other, but because the other alternatives are either not available or worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the basic assumptions that underlie American foreign policy, at least in my memory, have never been so starkly divided along party lines, right? Uh, in your book, you quote Bill Burns on this about how you know, diplomacy has been affected by partisan polarization, where I think the, the norm was that somehow the State Department could still kind of remain above that, that fray. But now, I mean, you've seen how partisan state ha ha can get. I mean, since I think the John Adams presidency, we haven't seen so much, uh, you know, partisan division in foreign pol basic foreign policy directions. Uh, when you consider that even our allies have grave doubts about the institutional stability of, of American foreign policy, can we expect China to trust the United States? I mean, I mean, even our allies recognize that Biden is going to have to rule mainly through executive orders that can be really easily re reversed, you know, if a Trumpian Republican wins in 2024, or God forbid, Trump himself, uh, that in any case, we are always just, uh, as I, I recently read in, in the, an essay in the latest foreign affairs, but uh, they were just an election away from a complete change in foreign policy direction. Uh, how do you wrestle with that? I mean, how, how do we talk to China or to our allies when that's the reality we have to be you know, honest about? Well, there, I don't know if there's any collection of words that can disabuse that notion or that concern. 
Um, but my, my general view is that the Chinese measure the durability of our approach based upon whether it enjoys support at home and abroad. If not, Beijing's incentive is to wait out policies that they don't like in hopes that the next person, the, the next uh, administration, softens or changes the approach. And this is a real challenge. It's not a new challenge, but it's a real challenge. And so, uh, you know, the more that we're able to show that the approach that the United States is taking towards China reflects the priorities of the American people and incorporates the views of our allies, I think the stronger case we will be able to make that it is going to be durable and that the Chinese uh, would be well advised not to try to wait it out. So have any of your Chinese interlocutors had a chance to read the book and, and have any of them given you feedback on it yet? I'm curious. <laughs> well, I, I have uh, had a chance to interact with a few friends, uh, I guess, loose, loose use of the word, but uh, counterparts in China. Uh, a few reactions. The first is, why isn't Taiwan uh, on the cover of the book? <laughs> uh, the second reaction, uh, are you sure the United States is capable of doing everything that you suggest? Uh, and also, uh, do you really think the United States will be able to enlist its allies in the type of approach that you recommend? The one area where I have not received any pushback or, or any challenges is in the diagnosis of the challenges that China confronts. Right. That, 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 like as I said, that's interesting because that is based not on, again, not on wishful thinking, but on a, a Chinese assessment of the, the difficulties and challenges that China confronts. That's, uh, that's why it was, I think, not something that they were going to challenge to you. My fear is that Beijing perhaps already believes the question of American intention to be settled. Uh, I'm, I'm really worried that, that Beijing's leadership is convinced that the United States, not just this president, not just this administration, not just this political party, uh, that its intention is to thwart China's legitimate aspirations and to see China on its knees. The thing is, viewed from Beijing, I don't think that's an entirely unreasonable conclusion to draw just based on what they've seen. And whether, you know, I, I don't think that's correct. And I, I think this, this administration doesn't, you know, genuinely want to thwart China's rise. But, but um, if Xi and those around him have closed the debate on that question, it's going to be really rough going for us. I mean, you write uh, again and again in your book not about how we must not turn China into an enemy. But I, I worry that there are many people, not just in D.C., but also in Beijing, uh, who would say, sorry, too late. Yeah, I look, I think there are constituencies in both countries who believe we are already hostile enemies and we might as well just get on with it. Uh, but I don't, I'm not yet persuaded that those views are decisive at the leader level. Mm -hmm. uh, President Xi does talk about time and momentum being on China's side, but he also warns that the United States is the biggest risk to China achieving its ambitions. And that suggests to me that, uh, that the Chinese are capable of holding two thoughts in their head simultaneously, <laughs> that uh, Beijing is not seeking out huge confrontation with the United States and recognizes that it would be vulnerable if it ended up in one. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, Joe Biden talks about China as a competitor, not as an enemy. He's not looking for a cosmic clash with China at right. the moment. Uh, if we end up there, then so be it. But uh, that's not the, the preferred uh, uh, meeting point uh, for our two countries at the moment. So, you know, neither side can escape uh, the relationship. Neither side sees value in direct conflict with each other. So if you accept those two propositions, then no, it is not too late. Uh, for, for our two countries to find a path forward. Fantastic. 
I, I think many people would agree with you, as I do, that uh, finding an equilibrium in terms of strategic capabilities where neither side aims to push the other out uh, out of the you know, first island chain or whatever, uh, what you call this sort of king of the hill uh, mentality, this would be very desirable to get to an equilibrium. But I think maybe in order to give people a sense of how achievable that is, maybe give us your take on how far are we at present in the Western Pacific from the kind of equilibrium you describe and and who who's who's up and who's down well it, it's a great question and my honest answer is i don't know um but i i would not be comfortable uh basing an assessment solely on a count of how many ships and planes each side has at right. its disposal in the western pacific and then drawing a linear line from those numbers to what it says about who would prevail in conflict uh, doing that, uh, I think, does a service to China. Uh, they're trying to put psychological pressure on us, but more importantly on our allies, to try to convince our allies that uh, China will always be present and America will always be distant, and uh, they might as well uh, understand uh, where their future lies. Love the one but, you're with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so any if we're going to be counting capabilities, then let's add our allies into the equation. Let's uh, add our asymmetric capabilities into the equation, and let's add our out-of-theater capabilities into the equation, because the reality is, uh, if, if there was a conflict, heaven forbid, between the United States and China, it would not be localized at the point of Chinese attack, um, but it would be you know, focused on China's areas of vulnerability, That's which right. are many. Uh, China's resource insecure. It requires imports to feed its people, to fuel its economy, and to support its growth. Um, so... I, I just I hope that we can move beyond sort of simplistic counting of ships as indicative of uh, of which way the actual balance of power exists in the relationship. Uh, I mean, it strikes me that if either party in a, any security dilemma, uh, if either party significantly overestimates or underestimates its own relative capabilities, that is an inherently unstable situation. Uh, you know, where you want equilibrium. I guess it's comforting to me that somebody who knows a lot can still say, I don't know, because that suggests to me that we're not too far from from parity. Uh, but no, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. If we do take into account allies and, and, and all those other capabilities, the asymmetric capabilities, then I think the answer is much more clear. Anyway, you, though, you quote approvingly a Trump administration defense planner, uh, Eldridge Colby, who basically says that the days of untrammeled military superiority, at least in Asia, untrammeled military superiority are over. Um, is this something, at least, over which there is no longer any debate in the DOD or in the NSC. Uh, is this now broadly accepted to be true? It's a it's a good question. I, I think that there's still some debate around this question. Uh, there are still some people who cling to the hope that with just the right uh, spending on the right resources and capabilities that the United States will be able to claw its way back to uh, military superiority in Asia. Uh, that's going to be hard, uh, at least from where I sit. Uh, it feels like there's going to be pressure on military budgets going forward. We have a lot of competing priorities uh, for American resources. Um, but, you know, I, I still remain confident that we're going to be able to manage ourselves just fine in a more contested environment uh, in Asia. The, the important thing is that the United States doesn't need to dominate Asia to protect its interest. It needs to preserve its access, its ability to operate uh, in Asia. It needs to prevent any other country from dominating Asia. And it needs to preserve other states' abilities to pursue their interests. And I, I think, just as an illustrative example of the South China Sea, 
I think everyone was troubled by China's land reclamation activities, their militarization of outposts in the South China Sea. But even after all of that, we still find ourselves basically at a stalemate right. where China cannot push the United States out of the South China Sea without risking conflict. The United States cannot push China off of its artificial islands without risking conflict. Neither one is satisfied with the status quo. Um, but we, we have to deal with each other and, and coexist in a contested space. So in that contested space, there's always the possibility of unintended escalation because of accidents or other incidents. Uh, but you propose some very sensible ways to try to minimize those risks. Can you talk about what those mechanisms would be, what that would look like, uh, and what we need to do to put those in place? Yeah, I really, Kaiser, I I'm, feel pretty passionate about this point, that uh, it's just a responsibility of both countries to put risk reduction and crisis management measures in place. I think that uh, relative to where we are as two major powers, we're behind the curve on this. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we should take some lessons and draw some inspiration from the experience between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Right. Uh, there was the incidents at sea and an air agreement. There were other agreements on limiting uh, capabilities in contested geographic spaces, uh, limits on warheads and missile uh, missile ranges. I'm not saying that we should photocopy and apply uh, those same metrics to the U.S.-China relationship, but we should at least learn lessons from that episode. And I think that areas where it would be valuable for us to focus are on new and emerging technologies. Uh, I, I would encourage us to start small and build, mm -hmm. uh, to find problems that are possible to take off the table. But I also think that it'll be important for these efforts to be driven by leaderships in both countries, because the reality is uh, neither military is going to want to willingly cede uh, capabilities that it feels like will help it uh, to compete against its potential adversary. That's their job, uh, to protect right. us, and I don't begrudge them that. But to, to push uh, the type of risk reduction and crisis management that is necessary forward, it's going to need to be directed from the top, I believe. So this month we read that uh, China's defense budget is set to increase again by uh, what six or seven percent, uh, still much less than you know, in total the two percent of GDP that uh, we expect our allies in in NATO, for example, to contribute. But but it's a substantial increase. Are there ways that you see for us to avoid arms racing and all the baneful effects that arms racing actually brings about, including you know environmental impacts? Well, I. I hope that uh, that we will both be clear-eyed about the risks of this. Um, you know, allowing arms racing to occur is not going to serve either side's interest. And ultimately, I don't expect that the competition between the United States and China is going to hinge on which country has, uh, you know, the, the highest degree of nuclear warheads. Um, but we we also can't be sanguine about this. Uh, we we need to try to to front run these problems because the the more that these capabilities get put in place, the harder it is to to manage and limit them. So Ryan, last time we talked, uh, we didn't dive in enough into the, the question of human rights. I understand how difficult that is. You reminded us that you were the reporting officer while you were at the U.S. Embassy for Xinjiang, and you know uh, gave us a, a very clear sense of just how heartbroken you are about what's happening there. Now, I mean, I I look at this. I, I know that there are and and have been throughout history situations where you know a pure sort of moral righteousness or or opprobrium has been a powerful and effective tool of foreign policy. But I, I actually have doubts about its efficacy in the case of China and Xinjiang or China and Hong Kong. I, I mean, I don't 
see that deploying the most potent words in our moral vocabulary, you know, like words like genocide, uh, will do much more than stiffen Beijing's resolve or put a lot of the Chinese people who might otherwise be sympathetic to the plight of the Uyghurs, you know, who have experienced repression by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, to put them out of reach of us, you know, to galvanize them push them onto the other side. Um, meanwhile, I don't think Beijing will fold if our strategy is just to to try to inflict more economic pain. They've shown quite an ability to, to withstand that. We can't ignore it, obviously, and I don't think any serious person thinks that this is something that military intervention is is uh, is, is a reasonable option with. Uh, so what should we do? <laughs> yeah. I... I, I wish that there were easy answers to this question. I've been struggling with this for a long time, and I still haven't come up with great solutions, but I think that there are some instincts that are better than others. Uh, I think the starting place for us on the human rights question is to strengthen the power of our own example, to show that democracy is working well, that we're capable of improving social justice, raising living standards, righting wrongs, welcoming people from around the world. You know, the, the Statue of Liberty should be our guide. Uh, give us your tired and your weary. But but that yeah. people are going to say, great, fine. I mean, that's going to help us twenty years from now. But what about you know this, the the million Uyghurs in in camps in Xinjiang right now? Yeah. Well, the second thing that I think that we should do is to be very clear, very consistent, and very specific uh, about our concerns. Mm -hmm. Saying that uh, China is doing bad stuff in Xinjiang and it needs to stop doesn't doesn't do anything. I mean, we, we need to be very precise about what it is that we want to see happen uh, to begin to unwind the wrongs that have been uh, taken. We also uh, need to find ways to keep an unblinking eye on developments inside Xinjiang. I would love for us to flood the zone with right. as many observers and visitors as we possibly can, not just from the United States, but from the United Nations and everywhere else. But the Chinese, for them to really hear the message, uh, they need to hear it from us privately. They need to hear it from us publicly. They need to hear it from us bilaterally. And they need to hear a chorus of voices from our our friends and like-minded uh, countries around the world. And, you know, none of these uh, issues is going to solve the problem overnight. But it will help the people of Xinjiang know and see that we recognize what is happening and that we're doing our best to support them. And you know, we also should think about ways to show the Chinese people our support for their concerns and push the Chinese authorities to address them. And some of these are indirect. They're not going to solve uh, problems overnight, but pushing for more access to education, pushing for safe food, disability rights, the right to clean air. Um, these are things that matter a lot to Chinese people. And the more goodwill the United States enjoys inside China, the costlier it will be for the Chinese authorities to overlook ours and their concerns or to take actions that, uh, that put stress on the relationship. Mm -hmm. I, 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 of course, it's, it's impossible to ask anyone to come up with the solution right, right here on, on a, you know, hour long podcast. It's, it's an unfair ask, but I, I look at, you know, what we've tried so far and I remind, I try to remind people that from, 2017, when we first started to sort of be aware of the existence of this CAPS program, uh, all the way up until the inauguration, one option that we never tried, because it was just simply absent from our toolkit, was diplomacy. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I know it, it doesn't give a whole lot of, of hope, I think, to, to people, uh, you know, that we're going to go and, and finger wag at them from behind closed doors. But 
I, I, that is one option that we have not yet tried. And, and I, um, really hope that, that that's at least back on the table. Oh, it is. I think, you know, as Biden has made very clear, diplomacy is back. Right? Yeah. There's a reason I, I, he gave I, that speech at the State Department, right? Right. I do think it's back, and I do think it will be a topic that uh, that our leaders grapple with in Anchorage. Um, and when they do so, I hope they do so in a very specific fashion uh, and are very clear and telegraphic about what it is that we hope to see happen to improve the situation. What would be uh, demonstrable markers of progress from our perspective. Right. Um, just casting it in moralistic or negative light. I, I'm outraged by what's happening in Xinjiang, so I understand the impulse. Um, but to, you know, our job is, or the job of diplomats is to try to, to solve problems. Exactly. And that's where I hope we focus. Right. So you spell out um, a set of, I think, modest U.S. objectives in the relationship with China that you believe pretty much every other major country, with the exception, to be sure, of Russia, can get behind. Um, these are not rollback or containment goals. They're not trying to thwart China's development or to isolate it diplomatically. It's a list of objectives that are intended to be able to enlist support from allies and other regional powers uh, without forcing anyone to choose sides. And that's what I find particularly appealing about it. I mean, because this this logic that you deploy into why not forcing them to choose sides will ultimately get our regional allies and other other powers to choose our side. Can you spell that out? I thought that was kind of brilliant. Yeah, well, I what I'm trying to suggest is that we need to approach these conversations with a degree of humility. We need to accept the point that you have flagged in our conversation just now about uh, their concerns, their legitimate concerns about uh, whether U.S. policy is going to shift in three years. Um, this is a, a reasonable anxiety on their part. The more that we can show our allies and friends that we have our stuff together, that we have a strong theory of the case for how we are going to compete with China, that our approach is attentive to their interests and their concerns relating to China, that we're not seeking a redux of the Cold War and enlisting them in a block in opposition to China, uh, that we respect uh, that, that other countries are going to maintain their own relations and pursue their own interests with China, the stronger of a position that we're going to be in. We can afford to start small and build. Um, and like you said, I think that there is broad agreement around the big picture. Every um, major country, with the exception of Russia, that we partner with around the world would like to see China forego bullying, would like to see China contribute more to global challenges. That's their space to build on yeah. uh, there. And if we can meet our allies where they are and work steadily, I'm confident that we can find overlapping interests that allow us to partner uh, in trying to move China in our preferred directions. So in your book, in Chapter 6, you make uh, a gentle criticism of the quad approach, uh, You know that it's more symbolic, you say, than substantive, that it, it leaves other Asian states feeling marginalized, right? Because it's only focused on on the quad members, just on India, Australia, Japan. And it comes at a cost to our relationships with some of those other states. I'm talking about Indonesia, or, I mean, ASEAN states, especially. So did it bother you that so soon into the Biden presidency, the quad has apparently been so elevated? Well, I have to say, Kaiser, uh, I tip my hat uh, to the Biden administration and the four the four members of the Quad for such an effective summit recently. I thought that they did a, a very effective job of showing themselves to deliver solutions to regional challenges uh, rather than framing the, the purpose of the meeting as in opposition to China. Um, and that the more that, uh, that we are able to deliver solutions together to pool our resources and capabilities to do so, 
if that compels China to rise to meet the challenge and, and sparks a race to the top dynamic, the world will be a better place. That would be great. Um, so I would love to see that happen, and I, I hope that it does in the future. But I also think that the United States is going to have to remain nimble and attentive to the concerns and anxieties that other countries in the region have that are very important to us about a perception that uh, that the United States, Australia, Japan, and India are meeting at the grown-up table to decide the regional situation and everyone else sits at the kids' table. That's uh, that's a corrosive dynamic to allow to fester, uh, particularly for, for partners that are so important to us, like the South Korea and uh, I, I would add Vietnam and others to that list as well. Right, right, right. It's funny, though, how you talk about U.S. policy toward India and what that should look like. Because you describe it very much uh, using the same words that Obama used to use for China. You say, a strong, secure, confident India is in Washington's interest. Was that tongue-in-cheek and kind of deliberate? Um, I mean, you even go like you talk about patient farsightedness, which is another sort of phrase from the China playbook in the Obama administration, and, you know, confidence that, that engagement is going to pay dividends over time. Uh, were you slightly tongue-in-cheek there? Well, I, uh, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that I had done that, <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Uh, but um, I, I think that the, the U.S.-India relationship will benefit from a certain degree of patience. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we can't expect India to go faster uh, than they're comfortable going. Uh, they're going to pick their own speed for partnering with us on issues that relate to China, and we need to be comfortable with that. You see, I mean, that's that's a theme I just keep coming back to. It's just, you know, you, you have to, to have a reasonable assessment of any any actor's uh, limits of, of its ability to change in a given amount of time. And that's the same with China. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the strategic triangle and the relationship between and among the U.S., Russia, and China. Um, and let's start maybe with, if you could relate if you, to, to me, uh, a dinner that you had where you, it was a state dinner where you sat next to Li Jianshu. Uh, who is, you know, one of Xi Jinping's closest confidants and allies. Yeah, so it was sort of a, just a serendipitous opportunity to be seated next to the person who was, at the time, sort of effectively Xi Jinping's chief of staff. Right. And he was this enigmatic figure uh, that always accompanied Xi Jinping. I'd sat across tables with him multiple times, but never had had a chance to hear the sound of his voice. Uh, you know, he was always seen, never heard uh, in all these meetings. And so it, I wanted to take advantage of this hour and a half that we had seated next to each other to try to understand, you know, the the man behind the myth. Mm. And he was uh, he was plenty polite. Uh, he was more comfortable talking about uh, how much he preferred uh, serving in the countryside to being in Beijing and how much <laughs> of a grind uh, it was working uh, in Beijing. How he never was able to sleep. Um, that but, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. The the one. He mostly swatted away my efforts to talk substance. The The one thing that sort of got him to light up was talking about Russia. Mm. Uh, and it was interesting because Li Zhanshu doesn't have any known expertise in Russia. He's not a trained diplomat. Yet he had been dispatched uh, by Xi Jinping as his special envoy to Moscow on multiple occasions. So I was trying to figure out what's going on there. Why, why were you doing that and what is it like serving as his special envoy to Russia? And he he sort of explained in a polite way that that dealing with the Americans is pretty hard, uh, that there is very little margin for error, uh, that the Americans are are well briefed and tough, uh, and and uh, the the conversations are are businesslike, um, but but quite direct. 
and he juxtaposed that to his experiences in Moscow, which he described as being among friends, uh, people who 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 share similar concerns and understand each other. So he didn't he didn't provide much detail beyond that, but I I just found that to be sort of an instructive insight into how from from his seat uh, the different relationships feel. You might also draw from that the, that that seat takes less seriously though. Sino-Russian relations, where it it really you know it pulls out all the stops. It uses only the you know the the most well-trained and respected diplomats when uh, it's you know extremely formal in its relationship with the U.S. So I'm not sure what lessons uh, to draw from that, but it's fascinating. So you call for a long game when it comes to the old strategic triangle. Uh, there are natural frictions that you think are going to emerge if we don't do anything to drive Moscow into Beijing's arms or Beijing into Moscow's arms. Uh, what are some of those those natural frictions that you see? Well, first of all, just to take a half step back, my my sense is that as Russia's relations with the West have gotten worse, they have gotten better with China. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a pretty clear parallelism uh, sure. to that. Sure. Um, but, you know, Russia and China, are, the relationship between them is not traveling along a predetermined path. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship presently is unnaturally close by historical standards. Both countries do not share a common worldview. Um, Beijing has gained wealth and power within the current international order, whereas Russia feels like it's been screwed by it. And so uh, there are uh, you know, divergences that are real and significant. Uh, right now they're being overlapped by by the fact that uh, both China and Russia are animated by common concerns about American behavior and American intentions, and um, also by the the unique closeness of the relationship between the two leaders, right. but that's that's not going to exist forever. And I expect over time uh, that that we will see that relationship return to a more historically natural resting place. I've been meaning to do a show specifically on this topic for a very long time. I, I, it's it's. I've got to find the right people to do this because it's it's something so many people have remarked on to me about how there's a natural affinity between Chinese and Americans, whereas there is none at all between Chinese and Russians. There's no sort of natural organic love to be lost. <laughs> no, yeah. no. I mean, one of the things that I was struck by serving in Beijing was meeting with Chinese officials to talk about China-Russia relations, and they would just trash on their Russian counterparts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then meeting with Russian counterparts to... Talk about how how that relationship is working, what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, don't, they, they, they don't like each other. Naturally. No, yeah. no. So, what what we're seeing at the leader level isn't necessarily uh, translating down through every level of both conference. And you've criticized this tendency that you know we've seen way too much in the last few years to lump China and Russia together. China and Russia is always you know you're always hearing that. Talk about why you think that actually hurts the U.S. Well, I, I guess one one thought that I would offer is that. Um, any attempt to create wedges between China and Russia is going to reinforce their paranoias and presumptions about American intentions and drive them closer together rather than push them apart. So I think that at a certain level, we need to take a Hippocratic oath of doing no harm, no diplomatic harm. But we, we also need to understand just the friction points that exist between the, the two systems. Right. Um, and we need to have patience. Yeah. So ultimately, and this this is the, the theme I think that is that the, the very center of your book. You place faith in this idea that as long as other powers have confidence in the U.S., 
they will naturally act to balance China. As long as we don't force them to choose sides or push them into doing things that aren't their, in their own interest. Um, I guess maybe if I hadn't had the experience of the last four years, I wouldn't see any reason to doubt their confidence. Uh, I do worry, you know, maybe they're once bitten, twice shy. But this, this theme of confidence is one that you, it really resonates with me, the importance of it. I mean, it's, I think one of the parts that moved me the most in the book was the pages in which you talked about all the good things that would flow from a restored national confidence. Maybe at the end here, talk about what some of those, those things are. You know, what does confidence bring back to America? Well, I, my view is that confidence is the essential ingredient for guarding against overreaction to threats uh, abroad. The more confident that America is in its ability to compete, the more capable we are going to be of finding a durable path forward for the relationship with China, where we don't swing towards alarmism, and at the same time we avoid dismissiveness. We just maintain a steady, firm course, which I, is what I think that we need. And the, the more confident and durable and steady of an approach we can identify, the more likely we're going to be able to attract support at home and more importantly, and as importantly, attract support from abroad for, for a steady approach. And I think that this is, this is sort of the key. Yeah, yeah. I think we need confidence in our own institutions. Confidence, though, more importantly, in, in the kind of self-correcting abilities of an open society to weed out that things. I mean, I think we are overreacting, as you say, uh, to worries about Chinese influence operations. We're, we're overreacting to, you know, uh, I think the whole China initiative is a gigantic overreaction. Uh, and it shows a lack of confidence. Anyway, the, the line, though, where is the line between confidence and hubris, though? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I guess I would say hubris is thinking that we will be able to impose our will on China. Mm -hmm. Hubris is thinking that we will be able to accomplish in China what we have not been able to accomplish in Cuba, a country 90 miles off of our shores for the past 60 years. Confidence is knowing that if we take care of our own affairs well, if we live up to our values, we'll be just fine in our ability to compete with China. Ryan, what an absolute pleasure to talk to you, as always. Can't wait to have you back on. Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, but first, just a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by Sup China. And if the best thing that you can do to support the work that we do with the podcast and all the other shows in the network is to subscribe to Sup China Access. Uh, check out some of the, the new shows in our network. Uh, a couple of reminders. Season two of Strangers in China is going great guns. Definitely check that. And if you haven't already, tune into China Stories, where we do audio readings of what I think are, are some fantastic uh, stories written by English language outlets writing on China, including The Wire China, Protocol China. Uh, this week, we've got a really, really uh, moving essay by Orville Schell about, the, about Lu Xun. Let me also just express my deep condolences to Orville who at the end of February lost his wife, Bai Fong, uh, to, to cancer. Um, really, I had the, the pleasure of meeting her on a few occasions, and she was just so uh, warm and generous and thoughtful. Uh, I really, my, my deep condolences to you, Orville. I look forward to having you on the show too, Orville, because uh, we're going to be talking about your new book, My Old Home, the novel, which is excellent. I highly recommend it. All right, on to recommendations. Uh, Ryan, why don't you just kick us off? What you got? My recommendation would be anything that Bill Burns has written. Uh, uh, Bill Burns formerly was the Deputy Secretary of State, the most distinguished Foreign Service officer of his generation. He's been nominated to be the CIA director. And in a brief period in between government service, he served as the president of the Carnegie Endowment, 
where he uh, shared with the public what we have all known privately inside the U.S. government, uh, that he is really, truly uh, one of the most gifted thinkers and writers uh, that, uh, that America has. He is just wonderful. I was so delighted to see that he was named as, as a director of the CIA. I really hope that that, that does some good. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Bob Wright, Robert Wright uh, has this report card that he gives to people uh, that's based on uh, how well they sort of tick the bo- boxes on what he calls progressive realism, this foreign policy ideology of his. And by far the highest grade so far has been given to Bill Burns. <laughs> Check that out. All right. Well, that's a fantastic recommendation. I, I heartily second it. My recommendation is for you know anything that Susan B. Glasser writes in The New Yorker, just one of the most forceful essayists ever. But specifically, I want to recommend, as I talked about China Stories, the inspiration for China Stories is uh, an app called Autumn, A-U-D-M, which is owned by The New York Times. They have in their employ the most gifted reader I have ever encountered. Her name is Julia Whalen, W-H-E-L-A-N. Anything that she reads, I mean, she reads so beautifully. Not only is her voice just great to listen to, but the obvious comprehension that she shows in, in what she reads, never mispronouncing a word, always just getting the exact right inflection, you know, knowing exactly what phrase is subordinate to what, what she should emphasize. It's just... It's better than reading yourself. I highly recommend her. Uh, I send her as an example to all the readers for China Stories, and uh, I, I I could listen to her read a damn phone book and, and enjoy it. It's just fantastic. Julia Whalen reading the essays of Susan B. Glasser and others in on Autumn. All right, Ryan, what a pleasure! I, I just can't uh, can't wait to have you back on again. Can't be. Thank you, soon. Kaiser. It's really been a privilege for me to be with you. All right. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Eleven of them now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.